Well, good morning. It's so glad that you're able to join us today. We want to continue our study of John chapter 7, which we're calling Clearing Up the Confusion. Because uh, in this chapter, we see a ton of confusion. Now, has that changed in the last 2,000 years? Do you think there's a lot of confusion out there in the world today? Just a little bit, right? I mean, we've kind of beat this horse to death, but, you know, all this stuff with COVID-19. I mean, how much confusion is there out there? And now, oh joy, we're in the middle of a presidential election uh, where there's going to be all kinds of things said. But really, the problem goes deeper than, than any of that. Our, our culture is very confused. It's very confused about right versus wrong, good versus evil. In fact, our, our culture is having trouble telling the difference between things even like male and female these days. Our culture is confused. But even it goes all the way down to the same question that we're going to see in John chapter 7. Who is Jesus? A lot of confusion about that today. In fact, that's the most disturbing thing I saw this week. A, a new study that said of evangelicals, so people who say, yes, I have been born again, I'm a follower of Jesus, 30% of evangelicals said Jesus Christ is a great teacher, but not the Son of God. Not God in the flesh. As the, the person, who I saw this on social media, as that person commented, they're not really evangelicals, Right? Because that's the core of what we believe, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. So there's confusion out there in the world, but there's also confusion in the seats and churches all over the United States of America, even about the question, who is Jesus? And it's so important that we know the answers, because things were confused in the time of Christ as well. And what we see in the world full of so much confusion, Jesus offered heavenly answers. And they're the answers they needed back then, they're the answers that we need today. So I want to take you, invite you to take your Bibles and open up to John chapter 7 this morning. And we're going to look at this chapter in three different parts. We looked at the first part last time, and today we're going to look at the big chunk here in the middle of what happens. But this all goes around the Feast of Booths. That's what it says there in verse 2, also known as the Feast of tabernacles, or they would call it in Israel today, Sukkot. And uh, this year, it's October 2nd through 9th, and still to this day, they construct booths, you know, on their patios or outside of their house to, to live in and do some ceremonial things in throughout the week to remember when they lived in tents in the wilderness. So this year, from October 2nd through 9th, do you want to build a little hut in your driveway? Knock yourself out. And uh, remember the feast of tabernacles. But if you remember last week, Jesus' brothers, that's an interesting interaction. His brothers, the other sons of Mary, are saying, hey, Jesus, go on up and do all your works in Jerusalem. Let people see him. I mean, that's everybody's going to be there. This is your time, Jesus. And Jesus makes the point, guys, my mission isn't to be popular. It's to be faithful. And he makes that point. And today we're going to see what actually happens at the feast. Because Jesus goes up incognito to the feast, but today he's going to start speaking. And it really divides nicely into three separate scenes here from verse 14 through 36. And we're going to look at them one at a time. So scene one here is from verse 14 through 24. Let me read that for us. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? 
So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's the first scene here. And Jesus, he goes up quietly to this feast we saw last week. But now in verse 14, he goes into the temple and begins teaching. Now that was not under the radar. I mean, he is going to the most visible, most public place and openly teaching. Now, why would he do that? I mean, why go up to the feast kind of in the quiet, in secrecy, only to then halfway through start speaking for everybody? We already talked about this feast would have been late September, early October. When, uh, when is Easter every year? What season is Easter in every year? It's in the spring, right? March or April. So right now it's September, October. Passover, which is in March or April, that's why Easter is there, is coming. Jesus is about six months from his crucifixion. Well, that time when he goes up to the feast and he doesn't keep it a secret, what happens? What do we call the Sunday before Easter? Palm Sunday, when he makes this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and everybody's shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And they're putting palm branches and the robes down on the ground, giving Jesus this kingly welcome. Well, Jesus, he doesn't want that. It's not that he doesn't want to teach. It's he doesn't want this welcome. He doesn't want more attention drawn to him. He doesn't want to stir up the anger of the religious leaders even more because he knows when his time is. Something he's very aware of we see throughout this chapter. But then in verse 15, as he's teaching, it says, The Jews therefore marveled. And remember, we're going through the Gospel of John. And John, when he uses that word, the Jews, he's not usually talking about all the Jewish people. He's talking about the religious leaders. And so it's the leaders that marveled, and frankly, they're, they're getting a little cranky. They're getting a little upset, and they're like, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They're upset because, you see, these people, they controlled all the religious institutions. They controlled all the places of worship. All the schools that people would go to would be controlled by this group of people. And now they're seeing this rebel upstart Jesus and saying, wait a minute. He didn't go through our system. He's not playing by our rules. We don't like that. But now he's teaching and everybody is following him. I mean, it's still a long ways away, but a lot closer to our time. You think of the Great Awakening and preachers like George Whitfield in England. But because he didn't go through the Anglican system, they got upset at him. They didn't like him. They closed the doors of their churches to him. So he would teach out in fields to crowds and massive gatherings of people. And preach the word to them. Because the, the people that controlled the institutions, they didn't like someone working outside of their system. 
And not only that, we see from other places, Jesus taught differently. When the Jewish religious leaders would teach, they would always say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and this rabbi says this. When Jesus came along and said, truly, truly, I say to you, it was a different brand of teaching, and it made them uncomfortable, largely because it wasn't going through their system and their way. And so they asked the question, hey, where is this guy studied? And Jesus basically gives the answer, uh, the school of heaven. <laughs> Ever heard of that? Verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And they know who he's talking about. But then look at verse 17. If you've got your Bible, put your eyes on verse 17, because I think this is maybe the most pivotal verse in this entire chapter. It says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. He says, And Jesus does a great job of this. He never plays their game. He never gives them the answers they want. He always just brings it to the bottom line. He's like, guys, this is the bottom line. The problem you have isn't that I'm saying something different. It's not that I didn't go through your system. It's really not a problem of knowledge or studying. It's a problem of will. He's trying to tell the religious leaders, the problem isn't that you don't understand me. It's very clear they do understand what he is claiming. Saying the problem isn't a problem really with your head, it's a problem with your heart. Let's write that down for point number one this morning. See how head problems often start as heart problems. He's trying to show them the problem isn't with your knowledge, it's with your will. I mean, they did have problems with their knowledge, but that's not the big problem. The problem is your will. The problem isn't that you don't understand me, the problem is you don't want to listen to what I have to say. And really, this gets us thinking about truth in general. And I think that truth is often a little more straightforward than we give it credit for. If you just want to jot down a couple notes about truth this morning, one thing you can say is truth is self-authenticating. Truth is self-authenticating. That, mean, that doesn't mean that, hey, there's no other evidence that makes us believe the truth is true, the truth is true, but because it is true, it will kind of confirm itself. I believe that specifically about the Bible, that by reading the Bible, we can see, no, this is a unique book that's making unique claims. This is the Word of God. And if you take that to a college campus or other places, lots of people will cry, circular reasoning at you. Well, they've got a lot of that themselves, but I think that's true about the truth. If something is really true, it will prove itself. I mean, we would all agree, I hope, that 2 plus 2 equals 4, correct? Well, that's self-authenticating. It proves itself. Because it is true, we we can all confirm it. I think this is also a reason why, and unfortunately, we probably all have painful personal experience with this, lies tend to be hard to cover up eventually. Because as Shakespeare put it, the truth will out. It's going to come out at some point. Time and truth go hand in hand. And if we try to cover it up, that's going to be a really hard thing to do because the truth is true, and it will show itself to be true eventually. And that's part of what Jesus is saying. My teaching is true, and it proves itself to be true, but the problem isn't your mind, it's your will. If you really wanted to do God's will, you would know that what I was saying is true. Truth is self-authenticating. But also, truth is 
selfless, Jesus points out. In verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus is pointing out, guys, I'm not saying what I'm saying for my own personal gain. Does this work out well for Jesus? What happens in six months after this? He's crucified. He's saying, I'm doing this to be faithful to the one who sent me. And this is one of the reasons why I believe the Bible, why I believe the New Testament. Because what happened to all the apostles, pretty much? They were killed for their faith. That These people believed in the truth, and they weren't in it for themselves. It cost them everything. But they said this truth anyways. That's why the apologists have that phrase, who would die for a lie? If this was all made up, the, the, all these apostles that ended up being martyred for their faith, at some point, wouldn't one of them crack and say, you got me, we made it all up. I'll tell you where the body is. It never happens. It's true. And you even think about other religions. You think of Muhammad, you think of Joseph Smith. These people, they had something to gain. They were trying to gain something from it. Jesus, his disciples, they had nothing to gain. And in fact, they lost everything. Jesus is saying, guys, this is true. And the problem isn't that you don't understand it. The problem is you don't want it. And then he proves it with two examples. If you look there at verse 19, he starts talking about Moses. Well, he says, has not Moses given you the law? And remember, he's talking to the religious leaders. Who knew the law better than anybody? The religious leaders. But then he says, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He's saying, hey, you guys know the law, but uh, yeah, what's, what's that sixth commandment again? Help me out. What's the sixth commandment? Anybody remember? Thou shalt not what? Murder. He's saying, oh yeah, you guys know the law, but then why are you trying to murder me? You know the law, but you don't want to do it. You want to kill me. And then he goes on uh, in verse 21 saying, I did one work. And if you've been following through the book of John with us, I think he's talking about John chapter 5, which was the last time he was in Jerusalem when he heals the lame man, but he does it on the Sabbath, and so they get real cranky about that. And Jesus rebukes them for that. He says, um, what do you do about circumcision? If a baby's born on the Sabbath, then guess what? The, the day he's supposed to be circumcised is going to be the... Sabbath. So what do you do? You circumcise him to keep the law of Moses. So if you do that, uh, then why are you so upset that I healed somebody on the Sabbath? It's not because it's actually wrong. It's because you don't like it. He's continually pointing the problem is not primarily up here. It's right here to the Pharisees. And he's really hitting them hard for this, saying, hello, McFly, if you really knew the law, you wouldn't have a problem with what I'm doing. I know you know the law, so clearly the problem is your heart. And then in verse 24, he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Which, let's just take a moment and pause and talk about that verse for a second. Any of you guys ever talk to an unbeliever, and when you start suggesting that they have a problem or they're a, a, a sinner, and you, just because you're trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, they're like, hey, don't judge me. And the Bible says, judge not, right? Doesn't the Bible say that? Anybody nod your head if you've had an experience like that? that? That's not really what Jesus is meaning. And he makes it clear here. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. There are ways we should judge. The problem with the world, and frankly, if we're being honest, the problem about ourselves is lots of times we judge wrong. And we judge based on appearances. But that doesn't mean we should never judge. In fact, you should be judging me right now. But if that judgment is, 
I don't know if I can trust a guy wearing plaid. I just, I don't know about that. That, that, That's silly judgment based on appearances. But you should be judging with right judgment. You should be judging, am I really teaching the Bible? Is what I'm saying true? Or am I up here making stuff up? Or twisting the scriptures to make my own point? You should be judging that. So yes, we are called not to judge, but it's the ways that we're not supposed to judge that the Bible highlights. Not all judgment. We, we, we should be discerning, but discerning in the right ways. And we all have to admit, we have a problem with that from time to time. So end of that side discussion there. But Jesus, bringing it back to the point, he's saying the problem is your will. Now I want to think through a couple ways this affects you and me. One is evangelism. And this is one of the reasons why evangelism is so hard. Because here's the thing, a lot of us, we start thinking primarily evangelism is all about giving people more information. And that's an important part. I mean, we have to tell people the core of what Jesus has done, and people have some valid questions that we should grow in our ability to be able to answer. But here's the thing, if you could answer all their questions perfectly, that doesn't mean, oh, I'm going to believe now. Because the problem isn't just their head, it's their heart. The problem isn't just that people don't understand what the Bible's saying, it's that they don't want to believe it. They don't want to do what it says. And that's why I want to encourage you, if you think, man, I'm I'm afraid to share my faith because I don't know if I know all the answers. You don't need to know all the answers because knowing all the answers isn't necessarily going to do the trick. We have to change people's hearts, and that's not something ultimately that you can do or that I can do. That's something that God does. But what he's called us to do is to give people the gospel. You might not be able to answer every question, but what you can say is, this is what I know. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And I know that I'm a sinner and I need a savior, and that's true for you too. And it's the power of that message and the Holy Spirit working through it that is going to save souls. And so yes, let's learn as much as we can. Let's get better at answering people's questions, but let's never focus on the the core of the mission and realize, hey, God is going to have to change their hearts because it's not just a head problem. But here, it's not just evangelism. It's It's a problem about ourselves, too. Jesus is basically rebuking the Jewish leaders because they're seeking their own glory instead of God's. Is that ever something we deal with? I think all the time, every single day. I mean, picture your life as a circle, right? And everything in your life. Well, what's in the middle of the circle? And by default, for pretty much all of us, ourselves. Self is at the middle of the circle. And my whole life is revolving around me and my own desires. And really, that's the fundamental change that has to happen in somebody's heart to get saved. It's got to be, nope, it's not about me. I want Jesus to be in the middle. Now, here's the thing. Even as believers, so many times our self starts creeping back in. And we're so tempted every day to start making it about us again. And really, so many of the problems that we continue to experience in our lives, the biggest problem isn't just our heads, it's our hearts. And the problem that you might be experiencing with your feelings or with your family or with your marriage or something else, the bottom line isn't, hey, I need more information. The bottom line is, I need to take myself and my own glory out of it and make it all about the Lord. And when we do that, we're going to see a lot more growth in our own life. Even though, hopefully, we put our trust in Christ, that doesn't mean this is never a problem for us, of seeking our own glory rather than Christ. Confusion often starts in the heart because we're seeking our own glory 
and not God's. And Jesus, very powerfully in this first scene of our story today, exposes that. And that's something we all need to think about. Let's move on to the second scene now. And this is where the confusion gets real deep. Look at verses 25 to 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they are, who they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So even in this passage, we see all kinds of different ideas and different thoughts about Christ. Starting with verse 25, how does that mesh with verse 20? Verse 20, verse 20 the crowd is saying, who is seeking to kill you? Verse 25, people are saying, is this the guy they want to kill? So what's going on? Well, even if you look at verse 25, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said. And that's where most of this was going on, the hatred towards Jesus. So maybe the people of Jerusalem knew what was going on, but guess what? They didn't, in the time of Christ, they didn't yet have social media. Uh, so this wasn't trending on Twitter. No one knew the whole story. And we might think like, man, no social media. Doesn't that sound nice? Well, well, in heaven someday, maybe we'll experience it. But they didn't have that. So there's confusion. Some people know what's going on. Some people don't know. And then they start throwing out ideas like 26. This is kind of a oddball idea. Wait a minute. I got an idea. What if the authorities know he's the Christ, but they're not telling anybody, right? If you stop and think about that for two seconds, does it make any sense? Not really, but people are saying it. And then in verse 27, but we know that when this man comes, the Christ comes, no one's going to know where he comes from. Well, here the crowd doesn't even agree with what they're going to say later in verse 42 when they say, isn't the Christ supposed to come from Bethlehem? They're confused. And even there was an idea, I guess, floating around that we see in other sources that people did think the Messiah was just going to appear out of nowhere, which the Bible never says. And then in response, we see more confusion. Some people are so upset at what Jesus is saying, they're saying, yeah, we should arrest him. And other people believe in him, which even that, we don't know totally what that means because John makes it clear some people believe in Christ in a way that's not legit, and other people do. And it was probably a mixed bag. But even what they say they're convinced not because of what Christ is teaching, but because, hey, is the Christ going to put on a better show than Jesus? I don't think so. So he must be the Messiah. It doesn't seem, for many of them, it seems to be somewhat superficial belief. There is so much confusion. But look at what Jesus says again in verse 28 and 29. And those first two phrases when he says, you know me and you know where I come from. As I studied this, this week, it was hard for me to get around. This has to be at least a little bit sarcastic. And, and even some have said, you, you could put a question mark at the end of that first sentence, which is, kind of, which is why I kind of read it, you know me, and you know where I come from? Because what he's going to go on to say is basically, no, you don't know me, and you don't 
understand. They think, oh yeah, Jesus from Nazareth. They think they know, but he says, no, you don't know. And the biggest problem at the end of verse 28, he who sent me, he's talking about the Father, is true, and him you do not know. You can't know who I am because you don't even know the Father. You don't know the one who sent me. Let's write this down for point number two today. Know that misunderstanding God leads to chaos. Misunderstanding God leads to chaos. And it's a big problem of of missing the point, which if you remember John chapter 5, this is a big deal that Jesus makes then. He tells the religious leaders, man, you have studied the Bible, but you've missed the point. It's talking about me. And he rebukes them and says, hey, if you really knew the Father, you would know me. And if you really knew Moses, you would know me. And in verse 44 of John 5, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? He's telling them, guys, you're missing the point. You're talking about so many other things when you're missing the point of who God is, what the Bible actually says, and really, you're still seeking your own glory and the glory that comes from men rather than God's glory and the glory that comes from Him. They're talking around the truth, but they've missed the point. I mean, have you ever walked into a conversation late and you come in and you're hearing all this stuff, but it's not making any sense to you because you missed like the key part at the beginning of the conversation? I think about an experience I had where I was watching a movie years and years ago when I was back in college with some friends, and they had all seen it, and I had not. And it's a movie that all revolves around like this one plot twist. And I thought, because the movie had been out for a while, I was like, oh yeah, I know that movie, and I know what the plot twist is. And this is where the narrator comes in and says, Ben didn't know what the plot twist was, right? I didn't actually know. And so when it actually happened, I'm like, what? And everybody else is laughing at me because they've seen it before. And they're laughing at my cockiness that, oh, you thought you knew, but you didn't know. And now it all makes sense, but it didn't before because you thought you knew, but you didn't. These people, they thought they knew, and that's where the narrator comes in. They didn't actually know. They didn't know the Father. So how could they know who Jesus was? Their confusion, I mean, we're seeing in these first couple points, they didn't understand God, and even if they did, they didn't want to do what he says. And those feed off of each other, because we don't want to do what God says. We, we come up with crazy ideas about him. And that's where I think this is so applicable, not just in the time of Christ. This is applicable to our culture today. Let's just take a little poll here at church today. Raise your hand if you're kind of concerned about the direction of the United States of America. Anybody here concerned about the direction of the United States? Okay, same as the nine o'clock. It's about 100% of us that are concerned about the United States of America. Now, let's, let's do a follow-up question. Raise your hand if you think the direction of our country is getting worse instead of getting better, right? Uh, again, most uh, large agreement on that point. We're concerned And there's all kinds of things, and look out, our culture is confused, and it is leading to increasingly more and more chaos in our culture. What's the bottom line, though? What is the root of the problem? The root of the problems in the United States of America today is the same roots of the problems that were going on in the time of Christ. People don't know who God is, and they don't want to. That's what's wrong. And if we're going to see a change in direction, we need to see that addressed. 
And that's why what we need more than anything is clear teaching about who Jesus really is and calling for people to turn from living for their own glory to living for God's glory. And that's what's got to be happening in pulpits like this one, and that's what's got to be happening in lives like yours, with your coworkers, with your family, investing in your children, with your classmates, whoever it might be. God has put us here to share the truth. He's put us here to clear up the confusion that still exists about Jesus today. Because we're still seeking our own glory and not God's, and we still don't know who God is. And Jesus came to shine a light on that, and now he has left us to continue to shine that light until Jesus comes back. Misunderstanding God leads to chaos. We're seeing it happen right in front of our eyes. And the solution ultimately is going to be about turning from ourselves to God and who Jesus really is. And I want us to think more even about our role in that as we get to the third scene. So the first scene was kind of focused on Jesus and the religious leaders. The second scene gets to the crowds and their reaction. And now we get back to the religious leaders in verse 32. And it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Right? Even though people were kind of trying to keep their discussions on the DL, they hear about it. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, time out. We read that without thinking about it. But the Pharisees and the chief priests, who were mostly made up from this group called the Sadducees, they did not like each other. And if you read the Bible, you don't really know that because it seems like they're always united against Jesus. When we read history, we found out that was about the only thing that they were united on. They spent the rest of their time arguing with each other. But in opposition to Jesus, they're united. And they send officers to arrest him. And in response to that, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews, again, that's the religious leaders, said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Well, I think this church right here today, I think you can answer the Pharisees' question, where is Jesus going? Where is he going? Heaven. He's going to heaven. And one person pointed out there's kind of three questions in this passage. Scene one, it's, hey, where did this guy study? Uh, heaven. Question two, hey, where did this guy come from? Heaven. Question three, where is this guy going? Heaven. It's the same answer every time. But he's saying, hey, I am going to heaven. And really, this is a warning, I think, that he is giving to the religious leaders, saying, you're going to seek me, and you're not going to find me. And I think it's a play on words. Are they seeking, you know, we think, oh, seeking Jesus, that's a good thing. Well, right now they're seeking Jesus, but uh, seeking him to kill him. Not the kind of seeking Jesus we're going for here. But in this play on words, he's saying, hey, you're going to seek me, and you're not going to find me. And where I am, you can't come. Now, that's even different to what he's about to tell his disciples a little bit later when he says, hey, where I'm going, you cannot come yet, but I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come back and get you that you can be with me. He's saying, guys, I'm warning you, you're doing it wrong, you're focused on yourselves, and your time is limited. Because the day is going to come when you're going to seek me and you're not going to find me. 
And that's a message God's still given to people today. Uh, Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. This is a place where we see a similar warning. And Hebrews was a sermon, it seems, given to Jewish people who had put their trust in Christ, they think, but they're starting to have doubts and wanting to go back to their old way of living and believing. And, And the writer is trying to convince them, no, 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 this is the truth. And he says there is this risk. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should, should seem to have failed to reach it. He's saying even this whole Sabbath thing, it's a picture. It's a picture of the rest that God is going to give us through Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that some of you are going to miss out on it. And he warns there in verse 3, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Some people are going to miss out. But, he says, there's an urgency. Verse 6, since there it remains for some to to enter it, the door to this rest is still open. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The writer of Hebrews is giving them a warning, guys, you need to be careful because some people are going to miss the point and you need to get it right and you need to get it right today. Let's write this down for point number three. Seize the opportunity of today. Seize the opportunity of today. And I'm not talking, hey guys, go out there and carpe diem this week. You know, Get after it. Seize the day. I'm talking specifically about salvation. Salvation. There is an opportunity today. And the warning for us is, is different. Jesus has already done what he said to the Pharisees. He died, he rose again, and he ascended to the Father. But we still know our time is limited. He is coming back. And I want to ask you, have you put your trust in Jesus? And have you realized that's more than just a head thing? It's more than just checking the right box. It's more than just saying the right thing. It's a hard thing. It's a thing where you're saying, I am not in the middle of the circle. That, that belongs to Jesus. My life is about him. That's what repentance and faith really looks like. Saying, God, I'm living for myself. That's wrong. I don't want to do that anymore. Jesus, will you forgive me for my sin? And will you come and take control of my life? I want to follow you. Have you done that? And if you haven't, the Bible's making it pretty clear today is the day. Don't harden your heart. There is an opportunity today that might not be here tomorrow. For one thing, we don't know when our time is. Jesus knew when his time was. We don't know when our time is. But then the warning there in Hebrews, he's saying, don't harden your heart. And in chapter 3 of Hebrews, it warns that our hearts can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that the door of salvation is open But the reality is lots of times people are the one to close it because their hearts get hard. Because they keep on hearing the truth, they keep on thinking about it, but never acting on it. And every time you do that, your heart gets harder. If you have never put your trust in Christ, stop waiting. Today is the day. Take advantage of this opportunity that is available to you not through your own works, but through what Jesus did for you. 
by dying on the cross for your sins, by living the perfect life. But it's not just about unbelievers. Let's think about our, our role as believers. Go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where we see similar words to what we have seen in Hebrews. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and just the first two verses, it again gives that idea of urgency. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And there are two types of people in this room. People that need to listen to that call and respond that today needs to be the day of your salvation. And the other type of people are the people that need to be giving this call and calling to others. Today is the day of salvation. Go back to the last two verses there in 2 Corinthians of chapter 5. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're pleading with people, be reconciled to God today. And this is the good news for our sake. God made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That the sinless one would be treated like he had sinned on the cross so that we could be treated like we lived the perfect life that he did. And our mission is to give that. And just like when Jesus said, he said, hey, time is limited. That's true today. For a different reason. Jesus has already died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. What's next? He's coming back. That's what the Bible says. And we don't know when it's going to happen. But our time is limited. I don't know why we're raising our hands so much uh, today, but have you ever played the game Catchphrase? Raise your hand if you've played the game Catchphrase. All right, most of you, if you've never played the game, I mean, somebody, there's this kind of computerized game piece, and you push the button and a phrase pops up, and you have, you have a team, and you're trying to describe that phrase to your team without saying it. So, like, you push the button and home run will pop up on the screen. And so you say, um, uh, in baseball, it's when you hit the ball over the fence. And if somebody on your team says home run, great. And then what makes the game interesting is you pass it to the person on your left who is on the other team. And it kind of becomes this game of hot potato. And whenever the, the thing buzzes, whoever's holding it, that team loses. And here's the catch with catchphrase. You never know when that's going to go off. You never know when that buzzer is going to buzz. But to increase the suspense, there is this little beeper that beeps the whole time. And it starts off, you know, beep, 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 nice and soft and melodic. And you know, the first person, you don't really feel a lot of pressure. You're like, all right, I got time. Uh, you know, what, what is it I have to describe to my team? But as the game goes on, it starts speeding up. Beep, 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 beep. And when that starts happening, like the tension gets, gets higher and it comes to you and all of a sudden there's like no saliva in your mouth at all. And everybody on your team is just staring at you like, why are you such an idiot? Why can't you say anything, right? And the pressure rises because you don't want it to beep while it's in your hands, and you never know when that's going to happen. Well, God has given us a message to give out, and here's the catch. He didn't tell us when he was coming back. All Jesus said was, I'm coming back soon. It's the second to last verse of the Bible. Surely I am coming 
soon. And if you said that 2,000 years ago, I'm thinking, man, it must really be soon. And I think we, we can get into a little trouble as Christians if we start reading the headlines more than we're reading our Bibles and trying to find out the significance of every little thing. But here's the thing, even if just you look at the big picture of the headlines, I think it's telling us it's starting to beat faster, people. Jesus is coming back soon. And we need to be ready, and the time is running out, and the mission that he has given us, and even the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, the reason he hasn't come back yet, he's waiting for more people to get saved. That's our mission. Time is running out. I want to ask you today, is there an urgency to your evangelism? Even just something I want you to think about, is this something that you think about every single week? Is there a week that goes by where you don't even think about sharing the good news with somebody else? If that's true, we need to stop thinking that way because the time is running out. Jesus is coming back soon. We've got a message. We've got confusion to clear up. And we're the only ones, I don't mean us, Compass Bible Church, I mean true believers in Jesus Christ all over the world, we're the only ones that have the message that the world needs to hear. So let's get it out there. And let's get it out there before it's too late, when people still have a chance, when today, the day of salvation, the door is still open. And I want you to think, I want you to pray. Don't wait for opportunities to share the gospel this week. Look for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Create opportunities to share the gospel because time is running out and there is so much confusion, but we know the truth. And again, that's nothing about us. It's not about our own glory. It's about, hey, this is true and it proves itself to be true. And we want to seek his glory. And it might cost you something to share that message, but it's worth it if we're seeking the glory that comes from God. It's a lot of confusion, but the Bible gives us clarity. Let's go Let's make sure we're getting the message out there. Let's make that a priority. And let's see God work through the power of the gospel to bring souls to Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him. God, we know your word says that Jesus is coming soon. Lord, and we think of all the people around us. I pray that you would fill us with compassion for the lost. God, I pray that you would fill us with urgency. God, and with so much going on around us, Lord, and important things, and people are thinking about... uh, Schools reopening and an election in November and so many other things that are going on that are all important, God. But help us to just realize, hey, with everything that's going on, it really is pointing to us that the time is short. Jesus is coming soon and we have a mission to do. God, I pray that we would be faithful to that mission. And God, I pray for our own hearts. Lord, every day we fight the temptation to live for our own glory, to seek our own glory. God, when you have shown us there's nothing that compares to your glory and living for that, God, help us to avoid that. Help us to avoid not just the problems in our head, but the problems in our hearts. And God, we pray for our culture that is so confused, that's becoming more and more chaotic. And we pray, God, that you would pour out your mercy on us. God, and not just mercy in improved conditions or whatever it might be, but pouring out your mercy through the good news, that we would see people turning from themselves and living for their own glory to put their trust in Christ. God, let us see you doing that. May we be urgently seeking that, God, and looking for opportunities to share the good news. And may you open those doors for us, Lord. We lift this all up to you, and may it all be about the glory of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray.
Amen.